Chapter 119 The garland of the trumpet was set afire, and then I saw the aperture of the dome open and a splendid arrow of fire shoot down through the tube of the trumpet and enter the lifeless body. The aperture then was closed again, and the trumpet too was put away. Johann Valentin Andrei, the Chemische Hochzeit des Christian Rosenkreuz, Strasbourg, Zetzner, 1616, pages 125 to 126. Belbo's text has some gaps, some overlappings, some lines crossed out. I'm not so much rereading it as reconstructing, reliving it. It must have been toward the end of April of 1945. The German armies were already routed, the fascists were scattering, and, name omitted, was firmly in the hands of the partisans. After the last battle, the one Belbo narrated to us in this very house almost two years ago, various partisan brigades gathered in, name omitted, in order to head for the city. They were awaiting a signal from Radio London. They would depart when Milan was ready for the insurrection. The Garibaldi brigades also arrived, commanded by Ross, a giant with a black beard, very popular in the town. They were dressed in invented uniforms, each one different except for the kerchiefs and the star on the chest, red in both cases, and they were armed in makeshift fashion, some with old shotguns, some with submachine guns taken from the enemy, a marked contrast to the Badoglio brigades with their blue kerchiefs, khaki uniforms similar to the British, and brand-new Sten guns. The Allies assisted the Badoglio forces with generous nighttime parachute drops, after the passage, every evening at eleven for the past two years, of the mysterious Pipetto, a British reconnaissance plane. Nobody could figure out what it reconnoitered, since not a light was visible on the ground for kilometers and kilometers. There was tension between the Garibaldini and the Bodigliani. It was said that on the evening of the battle the Bodigliani had flung themselves at the enemy, shouting, Forward Savoy! Well, but that was out of habit, some said. What else could you shout when you attacked? It didn't necessarily mean they were monarchists. They too knew that the king had grave things to answer for. The Garibaldini sneered. You could cry Savoy if you attacked with fixed bayonets in the open field, but not darting around a corner with a sten. The fact was, the Badoliani had sold out to the British. The two forces arrived, nevertheless, at a modus vivendi. A joint command under one head was needed for the assault on the city. The choice fell on Mongo. He led the best-equipped brigade, was the oldest, had fought in the First World War, was a hero, and enjoyed the trust of the Allied command. In the days that followed, sometime before the Milan insurrection, I believe, they set out to take the city. Good news arrived. The operation had succeeded. The brigades were returning victorious to, name omitted. There had been some casualties, however. Rumor had it that Ross had fallen in battle, and Mongo was wounded. Then, one afternoon, the sound of vehicles was heard, songs of victory, and people rushed into the main square. From the highway the first units were arriving, clenched fists upraised, flags and weapons brandished from the windows of the cars and the running boards of the trucks. The men had already been strewn with flowers along the way. Suddenly some people shouted, Ross! Ross! And Ross was there, seated on the front fender of a dodge, his beard tangled and his sweaty, black, hairy chest visible through his open shirt. He waved to the crowd, laughing. Beside Ross, Rampini also climbed down from the dodge. He was a nearsighted boy who played in the band, a little older than the others. He had disappeared three months earlier, and it was said he'd joined the partisans. And there he was, with a red kerchief around his neck, a khaki tunic, a pair of blue trousers, the uniform of Don Tico's band. But now he had a big belt with a holster and a pistol. Through the thick eyeglasses that had earned him so much teasing from his old companions at the parish hall, he now looked at the girls who crowded around him, 
as if he were Flash Gordon. Jacopo asked himself if Cecilia was there among the people. In half an hour the whole square was full of colorful partisans, and the people called in loud voices for Mongo. They wanted a speech. On the balcony of the town hall Mongo appeared, leaning on his crutch, pale, and with one hand he tried to calm the crowd. Jacopo waited for the speech, because his whole childhood, like that of others his age, had been marked by the great historic speeches of Il Duce, whose most significant passages were memorized in school. Actually, the students memorized whole speeches because every sentence was a significant declaration. Silence. Mongo spoke in a hoarse voice, barely audible. He said, Citizens, friends, after so many painful sacrifices, here we are. Glory to those who have fallen for freedom. And that was it. He went back inside. The crowd yelled, and the partisans raised their submachine guns, their stens, their shotguns, their ninety-ones, and fired festive volleys. With shell cases falling on all sides, the kids slipped between the legs of the armed men and civilians, because they'd never be able to add to their collections like this again, not with the war looking like it would end in a month. Worst luck. But there had been some casualties. Two men killed. By a grim coincidence, both were from San Davide, the little village above, name omitted, and the families asked permission to bury the victims in the local cemetery. The partisan command decided that there should be a solemn funeral, companies in formation, decorated hearses, the village band, the provost of the cathedral, and the parish hall band. Don Tico accepted immediately, because he said he had always harbored anti-fascist sentiments, and because, as the musicians murmured, for a year he had been making them practice two funeral marches, and he had to have them performed sooner or later, also because, the sharp tongues of the village said, he wanted to make up for Giovinezza. The Giovinezza story went like this. Months earlier, before the arrival of the partisans, Don Tico's band had gone out for some saint's feast or other, and they were stopped by the black brigades. Play Giovinezza, reverend, the captain ordered, drumming his fingers on the barrel of his submachine gun. What could Don Tico do? He said, boys, let's try it. You only have one skin. He beat time with his pitch pipe, and the horrible clattering cacophony drifted over, name omitted. Only someone desperate to save his skin would have agreed that the sounds heard were Giovinezza. Shameful for everyone. Shameful for having consented, Don Tico said afterward, but even more shameful for having played like dogs. Priest he was and anti-fascist, but above all, damn it, he was an artist. Jacopo had been absent on that day. He had tonsillitis. On the Bombardins there were only Annibale Cantalamesa and Pio Bo, and their presence without Jacopo must have been the crucial contribution to the collapse of Nazism-Fascism. But this was not what troubled Belbo, at least at the time he was writing. He had missed another opportunity to find out if he would have had the courage to say no. Perhaps that is why he died on the gallows of the pendulum. The funeral, anyway, was scheduled for Sunday morning. In the cathedral square everyone was present. Mongo with his troops, Uncle Carlo and other municipal dignitaries, and their great war decorations. And it didn't matter who had been a fascist and who had not, it was a question of honoring heroes. The clergy were there, the town band in dark suits, and the hearses with the horses decked in trappings of cream, black, and gold. The automaton was dressed like one of Napoleon's marshals, cocked hat, short cape, and great cloak, and in the same colors as the horses' trappings and there was the parish hall band, their visored caps, khaki tunics, and blue trousers, brasses shining, woodwinds severe black, cymbals and drums sparkling. Between, name omitted, and San Davide were five or six kilometers of uphill curves, 
This road was taken on Sunday afternoons by the retired men. They would walk, playing bowls as they walked, take a rest, have some wine, play a second game, and so on, until they reached the sanctuary at the top. A few uphill kilometers are nothing for men who play bowls, and perhaps it's nothing to cover them in formation, rifle on your shoulder, eyes staring straight ahead, lungs inhaling the cool spring air. But try climbing them while playing an instrument, cheeks swollen, sweat trickling, breath short. The town band had done nothing else for a lifetime, but for the boys of the parish hall it was torture. They held out like heroes. Don Tico beat his pitch-pipe in the air, the clarinets whined with exhaustion, the saxophones gave strangled bleats, the bombardins and the trumpets let out squeals of agony, but they made it, all the way to the village, to the foot of the steep path that led to the cemetery. For some time Anibali Cantalamesa and Pio Bo had only pretended to play, but Jacopo stuck to his role of sheepdog under Don Tico's benedictive eye. Compared to the town band, they made not a bad showing, and Mongo himself and the other brigade commanders said as much. Good for you, boys. It was magnificent. A commander with a blue kerchief and a rainbow of ribbons from both world wars said, Reverend, let the boys rest here in the town. They're worn out. Climb up later at the end. There'll be a truck to take you back to... Name omitted. They rushed to the tavern. The men of the town band, veterans toughened by countless funerals, showed no restraint in grabbing the tables and ordering tripe and all the wine they could drink. They would stay there having a spree until evening. Don Tico's boys, meanwhile, crowded at the counter, where the host was serving mint ices as green as a chemistry experiment. The ice sliding down the throat gave you a pain in the middle of your forehead like sinusitis. Then they struggled up to the cemetery, where a pickup truck was waiting. They climbed in, yelling, and were all packed together, all standing, jostling one another with the instruments, when the commander who had spoken before came out and said, Reverend, for the final ceremony we need a trumpet, you know, for the usual bugle calls. It's a matter of five minutes. Trumpet, Don Tico said, very professional. And the hapless holder of that title, now sticky with green mint ice and yearning for the family meal, a treacherous peasant insensitive to aesthetic impulses and higher ideals, began to complain. It was late, he wanted to go home, he didn't have any saliva left, and so on, mortifying Don Tico in the presence of the commander. Then Jacopo, seeing in the glory of noon the sweet image of Cecilia, said, If you'll give me the trumpet, I'll go. A gleam of gratitude in the eyes of Don Tico, the sweaty relief of the miserable titular trumpet, an exchange of instruments like two guards. Jacopo proceeded to the cemetery, led by the psychopomp with the Addis Ababa ribbons. Everything around them was white, the wall struck by the sun, the graves, the blossoming trees along the borders, the surplus of the provost ready to impart benediction. The only brown was the faded photographs on the tombstone, and a big patch of color was created by the ranks lined up beside the two graves. "'Boy,' the commander said, "'you stand here beside me and at my order play assembly. Then again at my order, taps. That's easy, isn't it?' "'Boy,' the commander said, "'you stand here beside me and at my order play assembly. Then again at my order, taps. That's easy, isn't it?' "'Very easy, except that Jacopo had never played assembly or taps.' He held the trumpet with his right arm bent against his ribs, the horn at a slight angle as if it were a carbine, and he waited, head erect, belly in, chest out. Mongo was delivering a brief speech with very short sentences. Jacopo thought that to emit the blast he would have to lift his eyes to heaven and the sun would blind him. But that was the trumpeter's death, and since you only died once you might as well do it right. The commander murmured to him, Now. He ordered assembly. Jacopo played only Do, Mi, Sol, Do. 
for those rough men of war that seemed to suffice. The final doe was played after a deep breath, so he could hold it, give it time, Belbo wrote, to reach the sun. The partisans stood stiffly at attention, the living as still as the dead. Only the gravediggers moved. The sound of the coffins being lowered could be heard, the creak of the ropes, their scraping against the wood. But there was little motion, no more than the flickering glint on a sphere, when a slight variation of light serves only to emphasize the sphere's invariability. Then the dry sound of present arms. The provost murmured the formulas of the aspersion. The commanders approached the graves and flung each of them a fistful of dirt. A sudden order unleashed a volley toward the sky. Radit had a boom, and the birds rose up squawking from the trees in blossom. But all that, too, was not really motion. It was as if the same instant kept presenting itself from different perspectives. Looking at one instant forever doesn't mean that, as you look at it, time passes. For this reason, Jacopo stood fast, ignoring even the fall of the shell cases now rolling at his feet. Nor did he put his trumpet back at his side, but kept it to his lips, fingers on the valves, rigid at attention, the instrument aimed diagonally upward. He played on. His long final note had never broken off. Inaudible to those present, it still issued from the bell of the trumpet like a light breath, a gust of air that he kept sending into the mouthpiece, holding his tongue between barely parted lips, without pressing them to the metal. The instrument, not resting on his face, remained suspended by the tension alone in his elbows and shoulders. He continued holding that virtual note, because he felt he was playing out a string that kept the sun in place. The planet had been arrested in its course, had become fixed in a noon that could last an eternity. And it all depended on Jacopo, because if he broke that contact, dropped that string, the sun would fly off like a balloon, and with it this day and the event of this day, this action without transition, this sequence without before and after, which was unfolding, motionless, only because it was in his power to will it thus. If he stopped, stopped to attack a new note, a rent would have been heard, far louder than the volleys that had deafened him, and the clocks would all resume their tachycardial palpitation. Jacopo wished with his whole soul that this man beside him would not order taps. I could refuse, he said to himself, and stay like this forever. He had entered that trance state that overwhelms the diver when he tries not to surface, wanting to prolong the inertia that allows him to glide along the ocean floor. Trying to express what he felt then, Belbo, in the notebook I was now reading, resorted to broken, twisted, unsyntactical sentences, mutilated by rows of dots. But it was clear to me that in that moment, though he didn't come out and say it, in that moment he was possessing Cecilia. The fact is that Jacopo Belbo did not understand, not then and not later, when he was writing off his unconscious self, that at that moment he was celebrating once and for all his chemical wedding, with Cecilia, with Lorenza, with Sophia, with the earth and with the sky. Alone among mortals, he was bringing to a conclusion the great work. No one had yet told him that the grail is a chalice, but also a spear, and his trumpet raised like a chalice was at the same time a weapon, an instrument of the sweetest dominion, which shot toward the sky and linked the earth with the mystic pole with the only fixed point in the universe, with what he created, for that one instant, with his breath. Dio Talevi had not yet told him how you can dwell in Yesod, the Sephira of foundation, 
the sign of the superior bow drawn to send arrows to Malkuth, its target. Yes, it is the drop that springs from the arrow to produce the tree and the fruit. It is the anima mundi, the moment in which virile force, procreating, binds all the states of being together. Knowing how to spin this singulum venerous means knowing how to repair the error of the demiurge. You spend a life seeking the opportunity, without realizing that the decisive moment, the moment that justifies birth and death, has already passed. It will not return, but it was, full, dazzling, generous as every revelation. That day Jacopo Belbo stared into the eyes of truth, the only truth that was to be granted him, because, he would learn, truth is brief, afterward it is all commentary. So he tried to arrest the rush of time. He didn't understand, not as a child, not as an adolescent when he was writing about it, not as a man who decided to give up writing about it. I understood it this evening. The author has to die in order for the reader to become aware of his truth. The pendulum, which haunted Jacopo Belbo all his adult life, had been, like the lost addresses of his dream, the symbol of that other moment, recorded and then repressed, when he truly touched the ceiling of the world. But that moment in which he froze space and time, shooting his Zeno's arrow, had been no symbol, no sign, symptom, allusion, metaphor, or enigma. It was what it was. It did not stand for anything else. At that moment there was no longer any deferment, and the score was settled. Jacopo Belbo didn't understand that he had had his moment, and that it would have to be enough for him for all his life. Not recognizing it, he spent the rest of his days seeking something else until he damned himself. But perhaps he suspected this. Otherwise he wouldn't have returned so often to the memory of the trumpet. But he remembered it as a thing lost, not as a thing possessed. I believe, I hope, I pray that as he was dying, swaying with the pendulum, Jacopo Belbo finally understood this and found peace. Then taps was ordered, but Jacopo would have stopped in any case because his breath was failing. He broke the contact, then blared a single note, high with a decrescendo, tenderly to prepare the world for the melancholy that lay in store. The commander said, Bravo, young fellow, run along now, handsome trumpet. The provost slipped away, the partisans made for a rear gateway where their vehicles awaited them, the gravediggers went off after filling the graves. Jacopo was the last to go. He couldn't bring himself to leave that place of happiness. In the yard below, the pickup truck of the parish hall was gone. Jacopo asked himself why Don Tico had abandoned him like this. From a distance in time, the most probable answer is that there had been a misunderstanding. Someone had told Don Tico that the partisans would bring the boy back down. But Jacopo at that moment thought, and not without reason, that between assembly and taps too many centuries had passed. The boys had waited until their hair turned white, until death, until their dust scattered to form the haze that now was turning the expanse of hills blue before his eyes. He was alone. Behind him, an empty cemetery. In his hands, the trumpet. Before him, the hills fading, bluer and bluer, one behind the other, into an infinity of humps. And, vindictive over his head, the liberated sun. He decided to cry. But suddenly the hearse appeared, with its automaton decorated like a general of the emperor, all cream and silver and black, the horses decked with barbaric masks that left only their eyes visible, 
caparisoned-like coffins, the little twisted columns that supported the Assyro-Greco-Egyptian tympanum, all white and gold. The man with the cocked hat stopped a moment by the solitary trumpeter, and Jacopo asked, Will you take me home? The man smiled. Jacopo climbed up beside him on the box, and so it was on a hearse that he began his return to the world of the living. That off-duty Karen, taciturn, urged his funereal chargers down the slopes. As Jacopo sat erect and hieratic, the trumpet clutched under his arm, his visor shining, absorbed in his new, unhoped-for role. They descended, and at every curve a new view opened up, of vines blue with verdigris in dazzling light, and after an incalculable time they arrived in name omitted. They crossed the big square, all arcades, deserted as only Monferrato squares can be deserted at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. A schoolmate at the corner saw Jacopo on the hearse, the trumpet under his arm, eyes fixed on infinity, and gave him an admiring wave. Jacopo went home, wouldn't eat anything, wouldn't tell anything. He huddled on the terrace and began playing the trumpet as if it had a mute, blowing softly so as not to disturb the silence of the siesta. His father joined him and, guilelessly, with the serenity of one who knows the laws of life, said, In a month, if all goes as it should, we'll be going home. You can't play the trumpet in the city. Our landlord would evict us. So you'll have to forget that. If you really like music, we'll have you take piano lessons. And then, seeing the boy with moist eyes, he added, Come now, silly, don't you realize the bad days are over? The next day, Jacopo returned the trumpet to Don Tico. Two weeks later, the family left, name omitted, to rejoin the future.